I'm sure you've heard stories, you know, those stories where the hero starts out a villain, uh, but then has some kind of a transformation. He realizes that he's not what he really should be, and he ends up at the end of the story being the, the hero of the story. It's that transformational type story. A good one is a Christmas story called A Christmas Carol. And, uh, of course, the, the story is about Scrooge, and he starts out just a mean, nasty old man who hates everything and everybody. And, uh, and, and then through a series of miraculous revelations one night, he realizes that he's not what he should be. And he decides that he wants to be a better man. And the next day, he's an entirely different person. You know, he gets the, the, the biggest turkey or duck. Was it a duck? I think it was a duck. Goose, yeah. He gets the biggest goose for the, for the, the poor family. And he, he gives the kid who, who uh, goes and gets the goose lots more money than he should have for a, a delivery kid. And just everything's different. He's generous. He's kind. He's, he's smiling and happy. What one night can do. A totally new man. A new birth, you might say. There's another new birth story and I think it's even more incredible than the story of Scrooge. And that's the story of Nicodemus. Now, Christian folklore tells us that Nicodemus was one of the guys that was really high up in the Jewish um, culture. So, the, there's uh, the Roman government, of course, but then there's the high priest in the, the religious system in the, with the Jews. And, and uh, Christian history kind of tells us that Nicodemus was pretty close up there below the high priest. Lots of influence in the Sanhedrin and the religious institutions. It might have even been Nicodemus or somebody working for Nicodemus who tailed Jesus, asking him questions and figuring out who he was. And of course, in John, we find the story of Nicodemus early on, right there in the most famous passage, John 3.16. You might know it. It says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus told that story, that super significant um, passage, directly to Nicodemus. But the key concept of our subject for tonight comes just a little bit later. See, Jesus, He told Nicodemus something. In John chapter 3, verse 3, He said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The idea is that we're all villains. We, we all have that uh, wickedness and self-centeredness and whatever else might be in your particular personality that might be called sin. We're all the villains of the story, and God says we need a new birth. We need to turn around in order to become the heroes in our story. And in Nicodemus' case, um, we only see the one story him coming to Jesus that one time, but it's clear that his life was transformed. He listened to that story, and he realized what Jesus was saying was true. Later on, when they were plotting to kill Jesus, uh, there in the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus replied to them in John chapter 7, verse 50, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? And, and as a result of his influence, the Sanhedrin didn't pursue Jesus' murder at that time. And a little later, when they actually did plot to kill Jesus, we don't hear about Nicodemus in the room. It's almost like they didn't invite him to that particular story or that particular meeting. 
Now, when Jesus died, John reports that Nicodemus was the one who bought his burial clothes and the, and the, the balming, embalming spices and provided a tomb for him. Um, there, was, there was something special about Nicodemus' relationship with Jesus. His conversation with Christ had changed him, and he became a new person. And from a multitude of texts, we, we know that like Nicodemus, we need to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. And, and when you believe, it's like there's this new experience, a new birth. You become a new person. Um, like Jesus said, you become born again. Uh, but in John 3, this isn't the end of the story that, that Jesus said, believe and be born again. There's something, something in the mix. There's some details that Jesus uh, continues on with uh, John chapter 3, verse 5. And he says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What does that mean, born of water? I'm sure that this was a radical idea for Nicodemus. At the time, they had a water ceremony that was connected to the services of the sanctuary. So Nicodemus kind of understood it, but but it was, it was kind of radical to him. First of all, that you'd have to be born by water, but also this idea of the Spirit. What does that mean? Uh, <clears throat> and it might be radical for us today. Some people look at the ceremony of baptism and they think, that's weird. Why would you ever, in front of other people, go underwater? What's the point? Well, Jesus had some specific um, things to say that, that would help uncover this, but I think Peter, probably listening during the time that Nicodemus was talking to Jesus, because that's just the way Peter was. He was always kind of lurking around listening in other people's conversations. Um, and, and so, probably he heard this conversation with, with Nicodemus, and in Acts chapter 2, he preaches, and, and he, he, it's right after they receive the Holy Spirit, and he's speaking in tongues, you know, other languages that he doesn't even know. And, and uh, in the middle of his, of his speech to these people, these people who just 50 days before had murdered Jesus, 52 days before, he says, he, he, he tells them that they had murdered the Messiah. And then he, when they responded, what shall we do? Because uh, they, were, they were feeling that was wrong, and they, they were repenting of their, their sin of murdering Christ. And this is Peter's response. He says, now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent, and every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repent, be baptized in Jesus' name, your sins will be forgiven, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. So these are two actions that we do, repent and be baptized, and two responses that God gives. Your sins will be forgiven, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. In, uh, in the Bible, there's a couple words. This one primarily is used, baptismos. It's the, the Greek word, it just means washing. It, it could be used even for washing dishes. What do you do when you, not, not, uh, the modern dishwasher, dishwashing. I'm talking about when you actually use your hands. What do you do with a, a dish when you're washing it? You dump it, you dunk it under the water and you, you scrub it clean and, and then you dunk it under the water again to get the soap off and, and then you dry it off. Um, so in, in that uh, context, it's you know, perfectly appropriate for lots of things, taking a bath, washing dishes, whatever. Uh, this is an early Christian uh, baptismal in the Negev, about 250 A.D. 
And you can see that this was designed for you to step down into, and then uh, somebody would, would assist you, and, uh, and you'd be baptized uh, by immersion, by dunking under the water. Now, there were some cases in early Christian history, it's kind of fun to find uh, evidences of what, what they did back in the day, um, but there's some evidence that uh, in places where there wasn't very much water, I mean, we're talking about the desert where you haul all your water wherever you want it to be. Then what they would do is they would lay somebody down in kind of a basin or something, and they would pour water over them. So they're as immersed as they can be in that context. But the, the culture of Christianity from the time of John the Baptist, who is preaching around the Jordan River and baptizing, and, and the Bible records that he was there at the Jordan because there was much water. From that time on, the Christian church would baptize people by dunking them under the water. But there's another word that's used for baptism, and it's this word baptisma. And I don't know why there's a big difference between baptismos and baptisma, but uh, this particular word is used for submersion, like dunking, but, but also there's a suffering context that it's used in. Now, uh, this idea of suffering, Jesus is going to set this up for us. And, and he gives us an example in Matthew chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. James and John had come to Jesus and asked him if they could have prominent positions in his government. They were expecting Jesus to have this uh, a kingly, earthly government. And they hoped to have, you know, the right and left side of, of Christ on his throne on earth. Uh, but Jesus replied to them this, this fascinating statement. He says, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? What baptism was Jesus about to be baptized with? Uh, uh, the suffering of death, the cross, right? That was his baptism. Uh, so this, this idea connected with suffering, th they responded, of course, we are able not having any idea what Jesus was about to go through. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, be baptized with my baptism that I am baptized with. You know, we don't always go to Jesus and say, I'd like to sit on your right hand. But I think this message is a hopeful and beautiful message for you and for me. Not just for James and John, but Jesus invites all of us to be baptized with his suffering and to die with him. Let me develop this a little bit more. In the, in the uh, sanctuary, in the wilderness, the Israelites had these uh, services. And of course, uh, when Nicodemus and James and John were interacting with Jesus on this subject of baptism, um, they might have thought of some services that were happening in this sanctuary. If you were a priest back in that day, uh, you'd be at the, the beginning, the doorway of this uh, sanctuary in the the courtyard, and somebody might bring a lamb in, and you'd have a table, and, and they would confess their sins onto that lamb. Uh, they'd slit the throat, you'd catch the blood, and, and that blood would have the, and symbolically, would have their sins. And then you'd take that lamb, and you would prepare it in certain ways the Bible describes, and, and you would put it on the altar of burnt offering and burn it as a sacrifice before God. If you were observing this, you might think that the priests looked more like butchers than the, the clean white um, priests that we perceive today. And it would make more sense 
in that context why there's a basin of water. You see, God didn't want them to go into the holy place, uh, and sometimes they would have to. And as part of their services, they would bring the blood into the, the sanctuary. But before they brought that blood in a basin into the sanctuary, they would wash themselves. They'd wash their hands, their feet, whatever else they needed washing, um, in order to wash the sin away, so to speak. And I think that that, that service was connected with Jesus' ideas to Nicodemus and to James and John because he's talking about a baptism into suffering. What suffering would he uh, have but the cross? His blood would be shed on our behalf. And it's because he had the, the sacrifice, he made the, the offering, that we can then go to the basin and be washed of our sin. It's because he died for us, that we can go into the presence of God. That's the promise of Jesus' sacrifice. The promise is a washing of sin kind of promise. It's a beautiful thought, and, and it's going to be developed a little bit more by Paul, who in Romans 6 describes this suffering that God invites James and John and you and I into. Romans chapter 6, and we'll read the first six verses just to be thorough. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his, into his death? That's the suffering part. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall, should be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Sure. We've got some fill-in-the-blanks you have to do. Yeah, so uh, as many of us as were baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. Therefore, therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death. This is a really beautiful thought. If you, if you stop and think about it, the significance of this, this baptism idea is huge. We recognize that in Christ, we died. The penalty of sin is what? death. And Jesus took our sin. It was almost as if He lived our life and died our death on our behalf. And, and so, when we do this symbol of baptism, we're saying we recognize that Jesus died on our behalf. We recognize that He was buried on our behalf, and we recognize the promise of the resurrection on our behalf. This is a, a, a it's symbolically such a hopeful and promising thing when we, when we think of the, um, the resurrection that's mentioned. That can only happen because of the death that, that uh, Jesus died. Amen. Praise His name. Paul's uh, description is about to get even uh, more 
intense. Here it's Acts 19. He's going to describe a very, very real experience because when Paul talks about it in Romans 6, he says, theoretically, you're, you died with Christ, you're buried with Him, you're raised to newness of life with Him, and then he talks about living in the Spirit. Uh, but in Acts chapter 19, also verses 1 through 6, we, we see a story of this, and it's very real in Paul's mind. When you are baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit. That's, it's like one-to-one in, in Paul's mind. So let's, let's read that, Acts 19. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. What's that? And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the the people that they should believe on him who had come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born of the water and of the Spirit, and and Peter clarifies that when you repent and are baptized, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. That was Acts 2. And uh, when we read about the Holy Spirit, you find that the Holy Spirit has several different functions in our Christian walk. The Holy Spirit is, He's there to convict us of sin. You know that conscience, that idea of the conscience that we have? That's the Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts, reminding us of the things we've learned about God and reminding us what it is to live godly. So the the conscience that that we have is prompted by the Spirit. Uh, But the the Holy Spirit is also there to give us the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, It's because the Spirit is in our life that we have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, all those things that are good, anything that's good, really, any desire that's godly is a result of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And then the other thing the Holy Spirit does is He gives us gifts. And it's nice when you get a gift, isn't it? Gifts are are a good thing. I like gifts. Uh, The kind of gifts the Holy Spirit gives are very specific. They're not just a a nice thing for you. They're intended for other people. Isn't that how love works? And God is love. And so the kinds of gifts He gives are loving gifts, things that, that not just are good for you, but they're also good for others. And in fact, they're intended for you to to do something with those gifts in the context of God's people. Let's look at that, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 13. Um, Paul has this idea of a body, not just a church building with a roof and sides and windows. Uh, he doesn't even mention stained glass, I don't know why, but um, here's what he talks about. He says, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. It's interesting that he uses this idea of the Spirit because there's, the water baptism is a symbol, but for, for Paul, it's very real. You receive the Spirit, and it's the Spirit that brings unity. It's the Spirit that, that binds us in this body. Um, Um, 
when you look at this concept that, that Paul develops here, it's kind of like a math problem. It's, you know, the if-then statements. Did you ever do that in, in what is it, geometry or algebra? So, so let's just look at these if-then statements. First of all, if you repent, then you'll be baptized. That's kind of the next step. If you're there at the altar of burnt offering, before you go into the presence of God in the sanctuary, the next step is the labor. You're going to be washed. Same thing in the, in the Christian's mindset. If you're there at the cross of Christ and you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, then the next step is you'll be baptized. So then when you're baptized, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And then, again, if you have the Holy Spirit, then you'll have the power to live a new life and you're given gifts for the work of Christ. If you have the gift of the Spirit, if you have the gifts of the Spirit, uh, then you must use those gifts in concert with other believers, his church or his body, according to, um, to Paul's argument here. Jesus made it clear that you're baptized with water and the Spirit. And if you, if you aren't, you can't be part of his kingdom. That, that's his kind of foundational thing. And it's also clear from the stories of the Old Testament uh, that, and all the, all the way through the New Testament that salvation and baptism went hand in hand. Just look at every story that you see. The one we mentioned in Acts 19 is just one example of many in the book of Acts. But um, what about the people that can't be baptized? Do you need to be baptized in order to be saved? What if you can't be? Uh, of course, you remember the story of Jesus on the cross and the man beside him he gives his heart to Jesus, and uh, he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, there in Luke 23. Jesus replied, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Is there anything that Christ hasn't done for us? He lived a perfect life. He was righteous in all he did. He did that on my behalf and on yours. He died he did that on my behalf. He did it in my place. But he was also resurrected. And he did that as a promise that that's going to be my, uh, my end as well, the victory of resurrection. It's all of that. He lived and died all for me. But there's something else that he did. He was baptized. He was baptized on my behalf. Uh, this is the wrong text. I apologize. It's not Luke 23. It's Matthew 3, 13 to 15. If you have it in your, in your, um, um, in your handout, it's uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus, verse 15, answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. See, in the same way that Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' death is given to me, his baptism is given to those who, who can't, um, well, he's really given to everybody, um, but uh, it's not like it's given in the place of everybody. But there are people like the man on the cross or others who give their heart to Jesus in the last minute or uh, for whatever reason don't have the opportunity to be baptized. Jesus died, um, was baptized in their place. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, um, 
Peter says, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. You see, the intention is Jesus is taking our place, but he also asks us to live righteously, to die to self, and to be baptized like he was. So he gave us an example, not only a substitute, but also an example. Now, what about all those people that have already been baptized? Um, There's a lot of different ways that people have been baptized. In fact, the majority of people in the world that have been baptized have been baptized by sprinkling. And there's lots of different ways people think. I mean, one guy apparently was baptized in rose petals. That had to be expensive. And and there's people that are baptized with salt. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how that works. Maybe they they throw it at them. I'm not sure. But uh, there's sprinkling and there's pouring and there's all kinds of things. And uh, the only thing that we have an example of in the Bible is the very word baptism, like I mentioned early, earlier, it means immersion, it means dunking. Uh, and that's what the early Christian church did. They dunked them under the water, completely submerged under the water. So uh, one of the things that, uh, that happened in the early church is uh, after a little while, people started to get a different idea about how the church worked and how grace worked. How are we saved? By grace through faith, Right? And, and whose grace is that? Is that my grace that I give to you because I'm a pastor? No, it's God's grace that he gives to you because he's a good God. And it's through the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, directly through him, that you get that grace. But the church got some interesting ideas, and, uh, and they thought that things like marriage and baptism, and ordination, and I don't know, there's a few of them. Um, they, they thought that those things were the means by which the church handed out God's grace. And so you would come to the church, if I was a priest back then, you'd come to the church and I would give you grace through the Eucharist, or I'd give you grace to be saved through baptism. And the thought was that God was maybe not really that nice of a God. He was they, they kind of missed the whole point of baptism. And, uh, and they thought that God was kind of looking for all the ways that he could send you to hell, or at least to purgatory, uh, that that was really his goal. And so the church kind of steps in as an intermediary between an angry God and, and, and the people. And they're like, no, no, let's, let's kind of fix this. We'll give you baptism and then you won't have to go to hell. We'll give you the Eucharist, and, and that'll help with your sins, or we'll do whatever else um, in, in order to solve this problem. And you can imagine, if you were a, a um, young parent, you had a, an infant baby, and you went to the priest, and you said, if my baby dies, and remember, this is back in the day, there was a lot of infant mortality. In fact, it's only recently that we've um, improved in some of those statistics. Uh, but for a long time, you might have a bunch of kids and only a few of them would survive. And so the question you might come to the priest with is, if my baby dies, will they go to hell? Well, they haven't received the graces from the church through all of their, their systems, so the priest would have to say what? Yeah, they're going to go to hell. Do you think that's how God works? Oh, no. Our God is so merciful and so loving He's looking for ways to save us, not to, to destroy us. His goal and, and, and mission is to save us. 
But they got this mixed up idea about who God was, and so as a result, they, they asked the priest, can, can you do something to save my baby? And the priest would be, well, that, that logical reasoning, if God is angry and is trying to send us to hell, and if baptism keeps you from, from uh, going to hell and gives you grace, then, then yeah, let's baptize the baby. Is that how it works? Is that how baptism seems to work? Uh, the Bible doesn't describe that uh, scenario. The Bible indicates there are some requirements for baptism. In fact, it's, it's really looking towards an intelligent person. The goal of baptism isn't salvation. The goal is really uh, a display of a symbol, a symbolic display of what God's doing in your life and what you're choosing to do with God. Kind of like, kind of like a wedding. When I married my wife, I made a vow to her. The wedding, the whole ceremony was a public display of a choice I was making, a lifelong choice to love and cherish and honor her and her alone. And, and she made the same promise to me. It was a covenant. Baptism is like that. It's a covenant between you and God. You go through this ceremony of baptism, publicly declaring to the world that you've committed your life to Christ for all eternity. And Christ, because he's already done this, he's already made the commitment to you, but, but Christ symbolically through baptism says, yes, you've died with me. You were buried with me and you've been raised to a new life with me. And the, and the covenant is made in baptism. So there's a few things that, that are really required for that. My wife and I weren't, weren't married as infants. I'm glad that that wasn't the case. Uh, we had some choice in the matter. <laughs> our, our brains were fully involved in this covenant promise we made to each other. And so Acts 2.38 says that one of the requirements is repentance, something that somebody with uh, an understanding of sin can do. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So repentance is a prerequisite for baptism, according to Peter. And then the second would be confession of your sins. Uh, in Matthew 3, 5, and 5 to 6, then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to John and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. It was, a, it was connected. They confessed their sins and were baptized. And then the third is that they were to believe on Jesus. Um, in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, it says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Or according to Acts 8, um, if you believe with all your heart, they told the prison guard, then you may be saved. And the prison guard answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Uh, so you find these, these stories all throughout the Bible, or all throughout the New Testament, that belief in Jesus is a prerequisite for baptism. Can an infant do those things? Repent, confess, believe? No. The Bible looks at these uh, at baptism as a thoughtful, intelligent response to Christ by somebody who can, can really make those decisions. If, uh, if a small child wants to accept Christ and be baptized, is that, is that okay? Absolutely. It'd be a good idea for somebody who knows them to say, yeah, they understand what's going on here, but there's no reason why a young child can't be baptized. I was baptized at 10, and I'm pretty sure I had a good understanding of what I was doing. I was making a commitment for Christ. Um, so it's not specifically towards a, an age necessarily, but you at least need to understand what's going on. 
documents from the early church suggest that at, at some points there was additional restrictions put on baptism. For example, they would say that you couldn't be baptized until you were married in some places. Other times, in other places, they would require one to three years of Bible studies and proving before you could be baptized. And they did this because the, the church in those places were being persecuted. Uh, think about China today. If you were to be uh, growing up in, in China today, you'd find that a church would be hesitant to bring you in um, right away. And that's because they didn't want the Communist Party to become part of their house churches. So you might be part of a Bible study one-on-one -on -one or with a couple. Uh, and and at, at some point, you would say, I want to be baptized. And they say, that's great. Let's keep doing this for a year or two. And they just get to know you really well, and they would vet you and make sure that you're not a communist that's trying to infiltrate their church. Uh, so there's a, some appropriateness to, to some of those additional requirements. Um, but generally, there's no restriction except that you believe and that you confess and repent. And it, at that point, you can be saved or you can be uh, baptized. But what about rebaptism? Because some people have been baptized and, and they're not quite, for some reason, they feel like they need to be rebaptized. Is that a biblical thing? There's three reasons that are given in the Bible for rebaptism. Uh, the first is that your first baptism wasn't biblical. And so if you were baptized as an infant when you were a child, uh, when you were young, then it would be appropriate for you to be rebaptized biblically. The second would be acceptance of a significant truth, like um, Philip with uh, the Ethiopian. The Ethiopian was a practicing Jew. He'd been coming back from a ceremony in Jerusalem, and he was reading in Isaiah, and Philip, he revealed to him that Jesus was the Messiah, and that was brand new for the Ethiopian. And the Ethiopian pointed to the water that they were passing as they were, were uh, riding down the road in, in his cart. And he said, look, there's some water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip took him and baptized him right there. He was rebaptized. This would have been uh, an Ethiopian. In order to become a Jew, he would have been baptized. Um, but now he's, he realizes there's something new. Jesus is the Messiah. And he's, he's rebaptized as he accepts that new truth. And then the third reason in the Bible for rebaptism is apostasy. Now, I'm not talking about sin. Uh, I'm talking about apostasy. Apostasy is, is like committing adultery. If I were to commit adultery against my wife, that would be to break my wedding vows to her. And, and I would run after some other woman and leave her and divorce her. That, that's kind of what apostasy is. You leave the church, you leave God, you, you just say, I reject all of that. When you come back and you say, I want, to, I want to reconnect with God, I want to be baptized again, that's an appropriate expression um, of, of that, that renewing of the covenant with God. But what if you just, what if you sin? Because, I mean, how many of us have sinned since we were baptized, if you've been baptized? Yeah, all of us have sinned since our baptism. Uh, do you need to be baptized again every time you sin? And the answer is no, and Jesus tells us about that. In fact, in, in uh, the upper room right there before the Last Supper, Jesus brings out the towel, puts it on his, his waist, and he, he kneels down on the floor, and he's got the water there at Peter's feet, and Peter is just aghast. How could the king of the universe wash his feet like a servant? And Peter's 
response to Jesus doing that in, in uh, John 13, 8 is, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus, he reveals a lot in his response to Peter. He helps us understand this theology about baptism when he says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. The, the washing of the feet somehow has a really significant spiritual, um, has significant spiritual meaning. So Simon responds and he says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Wash all of me. I, I need to be baptized again, essentially, is what Peter is saying. And Jesus said to him, uh, he who is bathed or baptized needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And of course, he said that not all of you are clean, speaking about Judas. But, but there's something about this also that, that suggests that there's sin. And what was the sin that was in Peter's heart at that moment? There was a sin of jealousy and of competition. They were trying to, to vie for the top position in Jesus' earthly kingdom. And so Jesus is washing their feet, clean, cleansing them of, that, of their sin in that context. So while it's not a good idea to just be baptized over and over again every time you just feel the urge, um, any more than it's a good idea to go and get married again and again every time you argue with your spouse, it is a good idea to wash your feet like Jesus did. And the Christian church today has uh, something called the ordinance of humility, and the, the purpose of that is a, a repentance uh, it's a, a symbol of unity in the church. It's especially a good thing to do if you've had some, some fight with somebody. Go to them, repent, and wash their feet um, and allow them to wash yours. Uh, this is an, an important symbol in forgiving or repenting of sins and being washed. In the end of the Gospels, Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's about to go to heaven and he, he gives the disciples a command. And he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Until he comes, Jesus' command, his, his call to each of us, is to go out and to share the gospel, to make dis more disciples of him, and to baptize. That's an important part of what we're called to do as God's people. Do you remember the story of Naaman? He did some washing and some rewashing. <laughs> he was not an, a, a Jew. He came to the, the prophet and he had a disease, leprosy. And lots of times in the Bible, leprosy is used to illustrate sin. He had, he had leprosy, he had sin in his life, and Elijah told him to go to the Jordan River and to wash, and he didn't like that idea. The Jordan River was not, is not the most beautiful river that you might see. It's, uh, it's kind of muddy, it's kind of ugly, and he was like, I've got places I could go, and I could do my own thing, um, but eventually he was convinced and he went to the, the Jordan River, and he dunked under the water, and he came up, and, and he was still leprous. And he, was, he dunked under the water again, and he came up, and he was still leprous. And he dunked under the water again, and again, and again, until seven times he had dunked under the water. And when he came up the seventh time, he was clean. He didn't have any more leprosy. God invites us to follow him. 
And whether you're following Elijah and, uh, or Elisha and, and baptizing in the Jordan River to um, solve the problem of physical ailments, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't it be amazing if you had uh, diabetes and you were to wash yourself and, and the seventh time you rose up, you wouldn't have diabetes anymore? Or if you had cancer and you were to, to bap- be baptized and not have cancer anymore, wouldn't that be amazing? How many people would want to go be baptized if the result was healing? Everybody would be racing to this funny symbol. In, in Na- uh, Naaman's case, a, uh, a kind of an ugly symbol because it was muddy and gross in that river. But if he knew and was confident from the very beginning that he'd be healed, wouldn't he race to do this weird and, and maybe dirty thing? Yeah. You see, we, we sometimes have a stigma and wonder, well, what's the significance? What's the importance of this? But God's promise is that He'll take what is certain death for us and He'll wash it away. Not just sickness that causes us some discomfort and, 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 and maybe just a, the death of sleep that all must die. We're talking about sin that causes the eternal death that separates us from God forever. And God promises to heal us of that sin. And he invites us into the waters of baptism. What a little statement when you say yes to to his desire for you to go through this ceremony of death and burial and resurrection. Would you like to say tonight, would you like to say yes to God's offer of life? A new life with the Holy Spirit? 